Okay, how about we get started? I know everybody's got busy schedules and uh, we'll get things rolling here. Uh, my name is Tom Suter. I'm the CEO of the Advanced Technology Academic Research Center and welcome to our Thursday afternoon IT webinar series. Uh, recently christened in the last three weeks since pandemic. Uh, you're here today for the, we wanna welcome you to the role of zero trust security in the remote workforce. Very timely topic today uh, and what's going on around the world. I'd like to welcome all the attendees. Uh, thanks for making us part of your day. I wanna give a special thanks to Stephanie Brush and the, uh, the rest of the MicroFocus team. They've been a great partner for HR for years. They really thought of this topic and kind of helped us out with it and uh, really, really appreciate them. And they, uh, they hooked us up with one of our panels with Kevin Hansen, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, so this afternoon, we're gonna hear from our speakers, pop in a poll question or two, and then answer your questions. So I'd like to briefly introduce the panelists before we go into it. Uh, to my left, we have Brian Forsyth. Uh, Brian works at the OCIO over at Department of Homeland Security in the CTO office. Welcome, Brian. We also have Kevin Hansen uh, to, on my Hollywood Square panel to my right. That's the way we're gonna do it, I guess. Uh, Kevin Hansen is the CTO of MicroFocus Government Solutions. Uh, welcome, Kevin. And to my center left, uh, I've got a, a good friend of ours, uh, Jim Russo, who uh, works at GSA on the EIS contract. Uh, thank you for uh, coming, Jim. And then in the center square, we have Renata Spinks. And Renata is, I don't wanna give your whole story away, but she's actually not in San Francisco. She's actually at work today, and uh, I won't tell you where she is, but she's in the parking lot on her iPhone in her car. But that's the kind of dedication that she showed to be on this today. And then uh, to the middle right, we have uh, Brian Gattoni with CISA. That is a fresh logo there, the CISA's new logo. I like it a lot. It's, uh, it, it's really sharp there, Brian. Um, very good. Uh, so before we begin, a little bit about zero trust, what I've seen. Um, you, you know, I, I, didn't, I wasn't even aware of this concept till I think it was about two years ago, the CIO council had a zero trust group and we were working with Sylvia Burns at, at DOI in the very early stages of this project. And I was like, oh, zero trust, what's that? Uh, what we've seen is, you know, from the government perspective, what have we seen? Uh, we're used to having a, a having these great programs, the CDM program, Einstein, TIC, which all happen, you know, which all happen to be out of CISA. They're basically preventing the the adversary from coming in. The programs have worked well. They're they're definitely an approach that you need to take. We've also seen insider threats is a, is a very big threat. We've seen the uh, Manning and Snowden and other threats. What Zero Trust is trying to do, and this is the definition, you know, it's, just, it's, it's based on the belief that you can't trust anybody inside and outside the organization. And I think that that is the best approach because you need to have the all the above strategy. So I'm gonna turn it over to somebody who knows this uh, topic a lot better than me and is right at the front lines of it. And we're gonna lead off with uh, Brian Gattoni with CISA to talk, uh, provide a little color to us and, uh, what the uh, federal government's doing around zero trust right now is in relation to those programs and beyond. Thank you, Brian, for being with us today. Sure, thank you. Appreciate the, uh, appreciate the intro, appreciate the topic. This one's important to us. 
Uh, and thanks for mentioning a lot of the, uh, the successful CISA programs we have out there helping protect federal networks. One of the questions we tend to get a lot about, you know, zero trust or frankly a lot of new uh, emerging topics or architectures or approaches is, are they in alignment, are they an anthema to uh, the precepts that, that guide our other programs? And with zero trust, it's, it's clear to us that they're in alignment, that the goals of zero trust to establish a secure federal architecture to protect data where it lies are the same goals that we have within CPS and CDM, just looking to take advantage of more advanced technologies and how do we apply them. CDM provides a lot of base capability that's gonna be necessary for folks that are on a zero trust journey and trying to achieve an end state where their data is fully protected. CDM helps with that. NCPS provides a baseline for collecting telemetry to inform the folks in the, uh, in the threat hunting group and the cybersecurity division on what's going on in federal networks. So they can establish fact patterns for adversary activity and inform all our partners in the federal space on what they can do next to solve these problems. Great, great. Uh, maybe next we'll go into, and I'm kind of playing this by ear, but we'll go in the department uh, at DHS into the OCIO shop. Brian Forsyth, you want to kind of go in from your perspectives? Brian, you're on mute. There you go. Brian's still on mute. Brian, you're still on Better. mute. Technology challenged here a little bit. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Tom. Uh, yeah, Zero Trust for us at the headquarters it is basically, like you stated, not trusting anything and ensuring that everything has the right credentials to the data and to the resources, uh, hardware and software. Um, we were taking a look at it from a, a, a agile perspective. Um, instead of trying to take big bites and big chunks of things at a time, we're trying to skim those down to what we can do in agile approach, you know, every 90, 120 day sprints and enact uh, some zero trust principles within uh, our environment. Uh, one of the things we did was use some of the capabilities we currently have available to us within O365. I mean, that was a low-hanging fruit that we could jump on and take advantage of uh, to secure some of our uh, data within that office suite. Uh, we were successful in that, and we're, we're planning to roll that out uh, as an operational um, thing to the OCIO here uh, within uh, the next few months. Other things we're looking at is uh, our boundaries. You know, the boundaries have changed. We're no longer that castle with the, the solid you know, foundation that SIS is providing us uh, with the Internet of Things coming on board. We've got to look closely at what things are, are being attached to our networks and how they're being attached and where they're being attached. All that information can be utilized during a zero trust principles architecture. Um, so we're taking a look at that. Uh, one of the things our, our CISO office within the, within the OCIO is standing up is a CASB. Uh, we're currently looking at that, testing those capabilities. Uh, we've kind of put a priority on that uh, right now. Due to the COVID-19, uh, CASB can uh, kind of alleviate some of the uh, stresses that we have on our uh, VPN. Uh, we can utilize the CASB for uh, authentication purposes um, and kind of uh, relieve some of those stresses. So we're taking a very active role in DHS. Uh, we're sharing with uh, our components. Uh, we're talking with uh, agencies like CISA and uh, other agencies to see how they're doing and uh, getting lessons learned from them. Yeah, I think one of the things that you brought up is, is it's, it's so obvious, uh, but it's so true. And I learned that with uh, Maria Road over at SBA. Use what you have. You already are paying for some of these licenses. Use some of the capabilities that you already paid for rather than, ah, oh, I got to get my zero trust budget. Um, great. 
So next we'll go to Renata from an undisclosed location, not San Francisco. I'll let you guess where she is, but uh, from a uh, security perspective, I would love to hear from the from your world uh, what zero trust means in the Department of Defense. Thanks, Tom. Um, so for us in Marine Corps, working you know very closely with the Navy, just making sure that we understand no matter what your architecture looks like, it's the function that you're trying to program to. Um, yes, there's a cost model that we have to to um, think about, um, but we're divesting a lot of things so we can reinvest or, or cost avoid on some hardware and some software. Um, so you, you hear a lot about COVID-19 and our plus up for teleworking. And so you'll, you're, you'll know that we are um, probably leaping into Office 365 is what I'll call it. We, we just had to really increase and accelerate and already plan migration. So a lot of challenges to our infrastructure. Um, with that, you have your VPNs that's already been mentioned. Um, and then that next ridge line is understanding access control and how we're gonna manage those identities in a cloud environment. So the way we think about it is we trust, we verify, we examine and monitor behavior. We do have a governance and compliance process. And then we trust again, and then we verify again as that person whose identity is moving laterally and bilaterally across the network. Um, so you hear our Eric Snowden stories from an insider threat perspective, segmentation of duties. So there's a few different pillars that we look at when we're considering how our architecture is supposed to be designed. But the function of it is, is more of trust, verify, and trust again. And you, you continuously do lose that. So you had a plan and it was going to be executed in phases and then COVID-19 hit and everything got super accelerated. True, true, absolutely. Um, the good part about COVID-19 for us from a operation standpoint, no good part of from a healthcare perspective, but what the COVID-19 did was Marine Corps and Navy was already looking at um, accelerated acquisitions, using Agile, how do we mature our IT service model and so you hear us talk a lot about um, how does service management meet agile? And so the way it meets agility is being able to deliver quality and service to our users and our warfighters in a faster manner. Um, not a lot of waterfalls can occur when you're accelerating um, deployments, but the good part about commercial off-the-shelf products such as um, Office 365 we'll talk about or Comply to Connect when that's, you're talking end user devices, um, the good part about that is we're no longer designing, we're no longer um, building from the ground up like we would do a ship or an amphib. We're receiving an already product and we're integrating and configuring it in our environment. And so that helps us be a little more agile. Great, great. And let's shift over to Kevin uh, Hansen. Uh, Kevin, you have this perspective. You work a lot across a lot of different agencies. I'd like to get your perspective there. And then also, you you, you do a lot of work in the private. Your company does a lot of work in the in the private sector. How are they handling zero trust? I think that would be interesting to this audience. Go ahead, Kevin Hansen. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, you know, when we're addressing zero trust, we got to remember there's a goal here and a purpose behind it. And it's really to minimize the attack surface. Um, you know, number one, uh, and, and I think with the recent crisis, 
you know, and the need, you know, kind of reprioritization around some of the zero trust capabilities uh, really kind of highlights how the attack surface has changed. Um, and then number two, you want to minimize the exposure, you know, which is really the goal of zero trust is minimize the time uh, that any particular organization is exposed. So you see the convergence of, um, you know, security protections and security operations processes with, you know, risk management framework and risk calculations and risk monitoring. Um, and then your governance and, you know, your auditing capabilities, your compliance processes, you know, all these things uh, need to come together. So zero trust is, is a journey. It's not something I, I think I heard Brian say that you're going to do all at once, um, you know, but it can be delivered uh, in an agile way, you know, in a service uh, oriented architecture, um, you know, delivering IT value, you know, as you go, um, minim again, minimizing that attack surface and then minimizing that time of exposure. Great, great. And Jim, certainly uh, last but not certainly least, and uh, I know you're working on the EIS program and you know, we, I personally worked on FTS 2000, 2001 networks, and, and uh, now we're into a different place with EIS and it's, it's a lot of different models. You're dealing with SDN, you're dealing with cloud and certainly with zero trust. Looking forward to your uh, government-wide perspective. Yeah, so uh, thanks, Tom. Right, uh, we're, uh, I'm in the Office of Telecommunication Services and we do focus on the EIS program, Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions. But within the IT category uh, at GSA, we're also the acquisition um, channel for the other programs that were mentioned earlier um, by by Brian and, and uh, uh, yeah, I guess Brian and Brian, um, the uh, CDM uh, certainly and, and other cloud services also coming through uh, acquisition channels at, at GSA. So we've got a lot of the piece parts, but it's not as simple as agencies just picking one from column A, B, or C to satisfy their, their solution set. So the backdrop for this um, for us is we've got to get the agencies into a position where they could employ um, a zero trust architecture and uh, zero trust uh, model. Uh, you know, they've got to have a modernized uh, network in terms of transport. Um, ideally, there's also a, a move away from on-premise, solely on-premise, so the castle and moat type of situation onto cloud environment. Many of the agencies have done just that. They moved to the cloud or they're in a multi-cloud environment and uh, they're consuming services in that way. Uh, so what it turns out is that there's a lot of variables that we have to uh, move to or address when we're talking about employing or even setting up on our contracts uh, for zero trust solutions. Um, so it's not as easy as before uh, for the TIC program, you know, for many years, we've had the luxury of defining a particular service that has these capabilities and these um, key performance indicators and these SLAs and everybody can build to that. Um, and then it's a simple and easy buy. Um, you buy that the security package. Now, you know, we don't have that luxury. It's, it's uh, a lot of time that uh, we have to spend with our agencies, um, our customer agencies in terms of helping them determine what their requirements are. Um, 
And that's requirements not only for if they want to uh, talk about getting to zero trust, but it's, well, how do you even put yourself in position to employ a zero trust solution? So you've got to have, you've got to get away from legacy transport. You've got to get to modernized transport. Ideally, you'd employ an SDN or SD-WAN type solution for your network. Then you can be in a position to do micro-segmentation, um, for example. Um, if, if you're working with legacy you know, transport and, and network architecture, you're, you're just simply not going to be able to do this. So, um, you know, we're working sort of across a lot of channels here. We, we've got to um, be in step with what, and coordinate it with what CISA is doing. And we've done that, you know, throughout, especially working with uh, Brian's team, Brian Gattoni um, and Sean Connolly and folks as they walk through all of the TIC uh, three updates and use cases. Um, so you know, we're following along and trying to be the acquisition arm for those use cases, being technical, um, technically astute in terms of understanding what those requirements are in a way that we can communicate that to our agencies and our industry partners. The industry partners are looking for some depth behind the requirements. You know, it's, it's uh, one thing just to say, hey, we require you to give us reporting. Well, what does that mean? You know, and what depth is that reporting, um, for example? So there's that. So we're CISA agencies, industry, and um, at the same time, modernizing our contracts. So as, as we mentioned in the past, you know, we're adding services or updating services probably more correctly so that we can um, provide secure transport to the cloud, um, SD-WAN services, and uh, working on modernizing our, our tick solutions. So, you know, we not only have the traditional tick, which is generally our MTIP solution, but uh, we're also in a position to offer packages that uh, put together can satisfy the use cases, whether they be, uh, you know, cloud or uh, branch office, remote access, or, you know, following from that zero trust. And zero trust will probably be a blended solution from several of those use cases. Uh, so, um, yeah, as I said, there's a, there's a lot going on all at the same time, and there's a lot more responsibility that the agencies have to take on in order to get a solution that allows them to do uh, a zero trust uh, type of implementation. Great, great. Um, I think uh, we're going to break into a poll here. I'm getting a little feedback. Okay. Yeah, just uh, put on mute when you're not talking. Uh, yeah, we'll break into a poll. I have one quick question, though, and it leads me to maybe we should talk about it while Maddie's queuing up the poll. Jason Miller with Fed News Network asked, uh, what's, what's CASB? It's, uh, it's obviously means Cloud Access Security Broker. And, and Brian Forsyth, maybe you can describe that a little bit. And then maybe we can add some color. It's like, okay, I want to go zero trust. What are the elements that I need to look at, and what kind of like product set that I might I might I need? But Brian, maybe we can get a little more color. You brought it up about CASB and what that actually means and what that looks like. Yeah. So our our CISO office is currently deploying a CASB uh, product as Zscaler. Um, we plan on utilizing that for a lot of our. Uh, uh, security brokerage uh, internally um, and also uh, to get to access to some of our applications internally. Um, so it, it will help us relieve that old 
uh, I guess, whole, uh, historical VPN type of setup where you know you're required to VPN. Gotcha. The CASB allow, allows us to mitigate from a device into our internal network and it allows us to gain access that way. There you go. Anybody want to add anything to how they're using CASBs in their organization? Renato, are you talking? Okay. Uh, all right. I think one thing to Addie, add to you want to go ahead. Yep. Sorry, Tom. I think one thing to add too is, you know, keep, you know, everyone says zero trust. What's zero trust? You know, yeah, it's defined, you know, do not trust, but you know, there is no picture of this is what zero trust looks like. Zero trust is a principle. It's a holistic look yeah. at all your accesses, it's a holistic look uh, at all your devices, your resources, your data, and uh, implementing security in uh, many processes in many different ways. It's not just one thing and it's not, you know, you can't go out to the, to the commercial environment and say, hey, I want zero trust and they're gonna deliver it. <laughs> so that, that's interesting. So like on a, on a CDM program, we have some risk scoring. How do we measure our success with zero trust? It's- uh, Who's doing, go ahead. So for us, this is one of those really interesting uh, opportunities to recognize, you know, CIS is part of the Department of Homeland Security. So uh, Brian's team is putting a solution in place that's going to help protect us. And we're also the advisors to the federal government for risk and risk scoring that provides these solutions. So it's a really nice dovetail for, for our role in the TIC pilots to help assess the results of new architectures going in place to get the telemetry back to our analysts and really tighten up some of the coordination uh, between the two DHS offices that are trying to learn a lot of the answers that I think you know, we'll have more fidelity to as we move along. So how do we adjust risk scoring? We try, we see, we get the data in from the new capabilities that can be part of the architecture. We see how it affects our view of risk, what additional insights it provides and adjust the scores from there and then iterate and, and put it out there. Yeah, ideally, as the TIC 3.0 accelerates and modernizes, you know, we're going to see, you know, reduced transport costs, we're going to see reduced latency and improve the user experience. And I think that's one of the goals of Zero Trust is try to implement a Zero Trust architecture without the user experiencing that latency. You probably want to ex make it better than what they have today. I mean, that's what we've seen in pandemic, that it's, it's just okay in some cases. Renata, are you going to say something? Yes, um, um, just, you know, got to put my cyber hat on that cyber technology officer there is, is um, pretty evident that when, when we think about it, it's, it's while we have that user experience in the, in the forefront of our thought process, um, I, I think some of the challenges that we see across this architecture um, discussion, not just here today, but just, just at large, is that data that we are using that sets the baseline for whatever it is we're monitoring. And when you talk about a person's identity and their behaviors, how do we make sure that when that behavior changes, that Renata, who may be traveling to San Francisco this week, but any other time yeah. she's not traveled yeah. there, and maybe I didn't do what I was supposed to do and contact my IT team and say, hey, I'm on travel, like what happens at the bank. If you don't let them know you're on travel and you swipe your debit card, nowadays, they turn your card off. So it's kind of sort of that, that's the challenge there is, is Sometimes in my space, we don't have that baseline behavior to manage those identities properly. Um, so we kind of we revert or we have to go in the reverse 
when you're trying to understand the zero trust architecture, understanding risk modeling, but what if my aperture changes or my behavior changes and, and then I get kicked out or I'm not allowed to access because of the data that we're using as our baseline for compliance. Oh, no, I would, Is that I something would, you I, think, go ahead, go ahead, Kevin. Yeah, I, I would just add, you know, looking historically, you know, collecting the data hasn't been a problem, you know, around what, what users are doing on the network, but being able to correlate that data in a meaningful way where security analysts can take action on some anomalous behavior, that's really been the challenge historically. And, and when we talk about, you know, technology that's coming along to really help that, um, we're at a pivotal time right now with uh, the ability to leverage AI and, and ML and, and specifically unsupervised machine learning to correlate that data, you know, leveraging AI and ML um, to really highlight those unique anomalies that security operations need to focus on. So, um, you know, the technology has come a long way and I think we're at a pivotal time versus where we've been trying to, uh, you know, coordinate that data. I think, I think Kevin's exactly right. And Renata's use case about being on travel starts to open up those opportunities. You know, would it be great if instead of, you know, Renata having the responsibility to inform IT that she was on travel, that we had a back end hook into the IT travel systems we all use as federal employees to plan our there travel. You go. It just puts a little call in. The AIML handles the call and says, are they out there or not? Where are they? Does that jive? And the risk score never pops up, right? It just gets handled on the back end because we're innovative about the you know, types of data we have and how it can be used for more than just the original purpose. I think that's a good point. Rather than, oh yeah, she's not supposed to be in China one hour after she was somewhere else. Well, she was supposed to be here. And if she's not where she says on her travel calendar, what's going on? Something might be, something might be going on. Um, Maddie, can we do a, a couple poll questions? Okay, this is for the audience. What's the impact of your current situation? Has it moved the organization more towards zero trust? And then uh, the second one, what zero trust aspects are most compelling to you and your organization? If you can answer those real quick, uh, we'll have some data and maybe we can comment on it. We also have a Q&A box. Please ask, ask away. Uh, You've got, got these experts here and we'll try to intersperse it in there. We'll leave this up for about 10 more seconds, Maddie, and uh, we'll go with what we, what we have. All right. All right, Maddie. Okay, I think uh, we've been doing this for a little bit. We're very experienced. This is like our third webinar on Thursday. This is actually probably something that's moved the most that I've seen just because of this current situation. Um, so this is a very timely webinar. Usually it's like, it's not that pronounced, but 47% are starting to move towards zero trust just in the last six weeks. That seems pretty compelling. Continuous authentication, authorization. Any comment from our, our panel? Like, does this surprise us? Does this not surprise us? No surprises uh, here, you know, as I said in the, uh, the opening bit. A lot of the capabilities folks have on hand right now are foundational and moving towards mm -hmm. zero trust. So it's easy to turn around and acknowledge that 
take a little bit of credit for it because doing the right things will lead you to the right places, but then be sure to make those, those few arc degree changes in your approach so that uh, from just a regular secure future that you may have originally invested in, you're going to a zero trust based secure future. You're already on your way. It just takes a couple of design decisions, a couple of innovative adaptations of new technology along the way, and you're there. Mm -hmm. But people should take credit for the work they're doing already in helping them get there. I think it helps serve the conversation better to acknowledge that it is a cohesion of activities and not a uh, this or that or a bad choice or a good choice, right? That doesn't set the conversation up. Right. Right. Yeah, I think right. uh, I think that the uh, sort of drastic move for a lot of agencies to suddenly be in a full telework environment just really heightened the whole thought of you know how you know we're going to uh, authenticate users and authorize them for access to, to different uh, you know either apps or, or data stores um, you know even more than it was I, th I think everybody had you know some sort of a telework aspect to their to their operations but um, you know when suddenly now everybody's out there you realize you know where your gaps are and um, I think this was just you know the whole access uh, question and solution set you know really gave people pause and said oh okay now you know how do we put ourselves in a position to modernize you know this aspect of our operations um, I think that uh, it was just a big wake-up call with, with the uh, sudden shift in uh, percentage of, of users on remote access. Yeah. Hey, Tom, let me yeah, add some numbers there from, sure. from a DHS perspective. So for DHS, uh, we went from a, we had a 255% increase in workplace as a service. We had a 483 increase in our VPN, and we had a 900% increase in the use of Teams when COVID-19 came on board, everybody started using the telework environment. So access to the applications, Jason, access Jason to these. Jason Miller and this press, can you repeat those figures one more time so they can get those? I think we got some people <laughs> want to report on those. Those are good. Yeah. Uh, so it was a 255% increase in workspace as a service, 483% increase in virtual private network, and a 900% increase in the use of Teams, collaborative software. Yeah, I, I think uh, the use of that has really been a profound change. I mean, it's changed ATARC for good. I mean, we used to meet in person once a week. Now we have a, little, a quick Zoom in the morning. I don't know how many Zoom calls I'm, I'm on a day now and Teams and whatever. Uh, it's definitely changed. Anybody else want to add anything? I, I mean, maybe, Jim, you're, you're, you guys were probably the most is, as far as any agencies, maybe you were doing the most telecommuting. Uh, so I don't know how much of it affected GSA. Yeah, I don't know the percentage numbers as, as uh, easy as Brian did there because I'm not in operations. But uh, I do know that, for instance, just the meat and potatoes part of it, you know, we were well prepared with, uh, with employees with the right tool sets you know, already at their remote workstations. So, you know, generally they had a, a, a GSA furnished uh, equipment, a laptop to, um, you know, at least, you know, we were consistent in policy. We weren't worried about large percentage increases in, you know, people's personals, personal laptops, personal devices, and having to outfit them properly. Right. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm sure we had to upgrade our, 
our bandwidth, um, especially our VPN, sort of struggled under the load. But you're right, you know, since we've been sort of practicing this move for you know, seven, eight years, um, I think we were ahead of most. Uh, but we still suffered some, some growing pains, mainly in the, you know, the, just the volume of traffic just went up substantially, especially with the video calls. Right, right, right. We've got a couple of uh, inputs from Don McLean, I think that are pretty good. Forrester has a series of courses on Zero Trust. He also re recommended the book, and we'll put this in the outbreaks, Zero Trust Networks by Evan Gilman and Doug Barth. Um, a couple recommendations. We also have another question, um, and I look at this with any new technology. Uh, you know, one of the one of our verticals is DevOps, and we have a question around that. Uh, what are the agency plans to extend zero trust capabilities to organization embracing DevOps practices and containerization for the application delivery? Typical, typically, containers like Docker and orchestration engines like Kubernetes are fairly unrestricted as long as they are within a secure network perimeter. So it's in the perimeter, you know. So some technologies they assume we're in the perimeter they're not how are we going to adapt them to zero trust anybody I, want to take a shot at that i think it's helpful to to just re-vector where the perimeter is you know some of the early conversation went to deperimeterization right because it was based on our network mindset i think now you've got to get down to there are several perimeters and that's why we have a zero trust approach we don't trust anybody's entry from one to the next so if you go from the you know WAN to the LAN and get down closer towards the, the server and the database and the data field, each one of those should have a check in it that provides you some uh, assurance that who came in the very front door and walked through all the other doors in the house was the same person the whole way. And when I say person, I should say entity, right? Because this, this methodology has to extend from the people, right? And all the, the ICAM, IDAM rules that need to go in place and also the scalability necessary to handle the non-person entities for all these automated calls, all this, this hookup we wanna to do to automate and orchestrate and take advantage of the advancements in technology. We've gotta extend that trust to those capabilities as well. Um, I just add that, you know, Agile and, and Kubernetes and cloud environments, that's just another environment. So from a zero trust perspective, you know, there are a number of things infrastructure wise um, to Brian's point. Yeah that we're looking at, um, we're looking at identities, you know, what's the assurance that that person is who they are. Um, we're looking at their permissions and then their behavior uh, as they navigate laterally, you know, between uh, applications, which is really the next thing you need to secure, you know, regardless of the environment, you need to make sure your applications don't have vulnerabilities. And then the data itself, you know, at the data layer, you have to, uh, you know, provide zero trust capabilities around who's accessing the data. Uh, what's that data categorized as? What's the risk associated with different roles um, accessing that data and so forth? So, you know, the cloud environment's just another environment, um, but the same principles of zero trust apply from an infrastructure, infrastructure viewpoint. Just to as Kevin was saying, the cloud environment, you know, it, it's kind of a prime time right now as we push all of these legacy systems and applications to a cloud yeah. environment to take a look at their, their trusts and, and how we can enforce those along those ways. Um, build those in as we're building them out from our current legacy infrastructure to the cloud environment. Yeah. 
I think that's uh, that's very wise. We have another question. A lot of focus on identity and access management with zero trust. How do you view the cybersecurity posture of the endpoint as a component of zero trust, especially with work from home and teleworking with potentially unmanaged or personal devices? So we're switching totally to the to the endpoint, and I think we definitely struggled with this because some agencies never had certain people work outside outside. I, I mean, I, I just want to jump back. You know, it's another environment. It's another device um, potentially on the network that has, uh, you know, potential PII data on it through the use of applications that those users are authorized for. So, you know, same policies um, should be extended and controlled and managed, you know, from, from identity, you know, the authentication and identity verification to the data encryption to the least privilege, you know, access capabilities. I'm sure others have stuff to add too. Yeah, I think some of the capabilities coming forward, uh, you know, that, that we've seen from our DHS office with our move to, you know, more of the OneDrive SharePoint cloud implementations for our data storage, it abstracts the endpoints um, holding of the data away a little bit, right? So I fully migrated into my into my OneDrive, into my SharePoint, and I have multiple endpoints that DHS has issued me given what work environment I may be in. I have a laptop, I have an iOS device. I can save a PowerPoint file on one and bring it up on the other. And they're not stored on either. I'm really just viewing an instance of it. And with the appropriate checks in place and using the, the certificates the right way, there's a lot of protections in there that do invoke zero trust. They're not trusting me, the human, with the hard copy bit of the data in my hands at home. I have a couple of IT devices I'm on the hook to be responsible for, yeah. and I access the data through appropriate means. And one of the things you can't forget is the people end of it, right? People are the ones holding on to these endpoints, right? There's special trust and confidence placed in us as federal employees. There's special trust and confidence placed in employees of private entities that if we're giving you this to do your job, to provide your value back to the organization, that comes with responsibilities that you have to be held responsible and accountable to. And that, that kind of like uh, the next question is, is, is about mobile devices. And I know that in the CDM program, uh, uh, they're liaising back to DHS, SNT, and Vincent Sridapan for, for mobility security. But, you know, does the panel have any thoughts on the threats and risks from mobile devices as we use our mobile devices more and more and more, um, you know, whether they're BYOD or government furnished? Is it we seeing a rise in that? Is it is it something we think we have covered? Um, where do you think we are? You know, mobility is just another domain where you have to worry about zero trust. Anybody want to throw in on that? I, I know I've seen some recent reports, certainly from FBI, about you know uh, phishing scams going up yeah. in light of remote telework. Um, you know, ransomware is another issue with, uh, particularly with BYO dev devices connecting, uh, bring your own devices connecting to, uh, you know, network resources. So um, there are, you know, speci specific, uh, you know, vulnerabilities and issues that can be addressed by, you know, again, endpoint management, uh, security profiling of endpoint devices and so forth. This yeah, is a little self-serving, but we, Vincent, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, um, yeah, I was, I'll, I'll 
sorry to jump in there, but I was uh, just thinking about in terms of the mobile devices. Uh, you know, a lot of the mobility today is, I'm, I'm gonna look at the acquisition standpoint here, uh, our focus here, that uh, you know, a lot of those devices are bought separately, defined separately, requirements come up separately from the enterprise network. Uh, you know, in, in our opinion, you know, those should be um, certainly um, coordinated with and, and complement the security that's inherent on the network. You know, I'll say for lack of a better term, the wired network versus the wireless network. Uh, wireless meaning, you know, mobility LTE. Um, so if you have an MDM installed on your mobile device, is that MDM tied into your enterprise security, um, you know, is that reporting, you know, jive with uh, what you do for, let's say, your laptops or whatever other devices are used. So you know, that's a concern. Um, you know, I think some agencies are doing that better than others, but it certainly um, bodes for, you know, at least closer coordination. And, and perhaps um, maybe this is a turning point for, for that too, where, you know, Mobility has typically been purchased in a separate channel altogether from an enterprise network. And you know, I think this is going to bring some attention to that and maybe make it more appealing to include the mobility requirements as part of the enterprise network requirements going forward. And we'll throw out a link. We actually have a somebody I'm getting a little feedback. We, we have a we have a working group inside the mobility working group that, that is run by Vincent Sridipan that is also working with the CDM program on security. So we, uh, zero trust is definitely a big, big part of that. So we'll send out a link. So if you want to get involved with that, that you, that you can. Another question, uh, how do we, this is a real good one uh, that we haven't talked about yet. How do we manage zero trust with external non-federal users performing tasks on federal platforms? What best practices? So just to contextualize this, we have FEMA, they're working with fire departments, they're working with police departments. We have USDA that's working with USDA on forest fires. This is a common, we've addressed this in federal government for a while, you know, and uh, how, how, how best should we approach this with zero trust? Anybody wanna to add to that? Renat, I know kind of you have in. different I, military yeah. units. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So um, from, so, go ahead, Renata. Renata, um, you can go. <laughs> okay. So from a military perspective, um, you look at Army, you look at Navy, um, you look at the response to COVID-19. Um, so a lot of support on the medical side. So zero trust is kind of sort of already happening because you don't get those users who are helping us and using our platform they don't get access to our entire network. You know, there's containers being sent up, there's um, identity and access control, because most people that we work with, although they're not within the military, they have an identity that's been established in industry. So how do you take a look at that identity to understand who that person is, is that person who they say they are? You still have to go through that process. Um, I guess that's where you saw the personnel uptake of processing who's all the people we're working with. That was one aspect of it. But we also, you see a lot of liaison. So you, you see a lot of not really on our platform, but working with personnel who already had access to the platforms while others go through that, that very thorough background investigation and understanding what do they 
you know, really critical path. What do you need access to to do your job? Not here's everything the Marine Corps has within its um, within its aperture of, of cyberspace. And so, the NSA is very helpful. Um, DHS has a lot of best practices out there that the the military takes advantage of. So I think it's a collective effort, and it's probably a hybrid approach of how do you implement that zero trust from an accessing um, perspective. You know, we're going to start a zero trust. Uh, working group, and I think that this external constituent thing is is worth uh, pulling the thread on. And Brian, you wanted to add add some more? Is Brian Forsyth? I think. Uh, no, I was just going to you know add on that. Yeah, the, for for the DoD, uh, yeah, internal resources and vetting those resources from a federal perspective, where we serve the public, a little more difficult in that situation. Trying to vet who is public, you know, John Q. Public, who is Jane Q. Public. Uh, so we we've got a lot of work to do in that area. Uh, we're looking at it. We are working in that area, but we just haven't, you know, achieved success yet. Uh, the individual asked a question, mentioned, you know, using other uh, resources to do multi-verification, kind of like USA Jobs does. You know, you go to log in, yeah. got to hit your mobile with a text. Um, that's, you know, kind of what we've, the best part we've seen so far. Um, and we're thinking uh, internally, uh, I've talked to our IDAMs, ICAM folks, and they're looking at that as a, as a resource as possible using for some of our uh, applications. Oh, and I think, Tom, before the, the COVID-19 crisis, I, I think it was kind of a default that some of that, uh, you know, fell internally in, in security silos, you know, different application, different business lines who manage that stuff. You know, as we move down towards zero trust, you know, initially we can leverage, you know, as it's been talked about today, some of the capabilities you already have, but it's just coordinating those across, you know, all your new access points, um, you know, whether that be, you know, an MFA method, like a text to your phone that was just mentioned, you know, enforcing lease privilege for those users um, and, and uh, activity monitoring, you know, as we move forward and start implementing user behavior analytics, you know, even for citizen users or partners, we'll be able to compare, you know, again, using, you know, AI and ML, we'll be able to compare baseline activity with uh, current activity and anything that is, is unusual will get flagged. So, so there's things you can do now, certainly around access controls and, and activity monitoring, but, you know, there's a lot more, I think, that's coming as far as requirements. Yep. And um, I've got one for you. Go ahead. Yep. Hey, I'm not sure if anyone's tracking this commercial uh, virtual remote environment that um, you see across the DOD. What that is is OneDrive and Teams has been enabled across the enterprise of services, and um, just got you know got the water carried a whole lot with Navy. Um, Navy's done CIO a very new position, but Mr. Wise is no stranger to the commercial environment, and so he's brought a lot of that commercial thought process into us accessing OneDrive and Teams, it has increased productivity with the mass telework. Um, even restrictions of using video and voice in the Pentagon, that's a challenge, but that's a policy challenge, not a technical challenge. Um, but when people are at home, you, you, I think they had, and I'm looking at my G6 here, I want to say a meeting of 260 people uh, recently, all at one time using video. So bandwidth held up, um, voice and video, was pretty great experience. And so that's probably a model that's gonna hang around post COVID-19 if there's such a thing. I don't think there's ever gonna be post COVID-19, but um, 
just something to think about those commercial virtual remote environments. I think we're going to learn more about environments and segmentation of environments versus entire access to enterprises. And Renat, I got a DOD question here. Uh, is, is CMMC the first step of moving towards zero trust implementation or does that have anything to do with that? So, so I get it... that question a lot. I, I think okay. so. I, I don't know if it was initially thought of that let's do this CMMC thing to get towards zero trust, I think is, is just occurring um, just, just by default. Um, I will say just listening to, to all my counterparts here, I think zero trust is that architecture or that, that, um, that concept, if I take Brian's um, position on that, that concept that's always existed, we're just now putting more attention on adding yeah. to the concept, um, if that makes sense. Right. Right. Uh, I got another question, uh, and it, it's really more for like, I think the citizen services piece of government, maybe not for inter internal constituents, but uh, some federal agencies are, are using independent non-federal trust frameworks to manage perform that authentication. Just think of a veteran that uh, is logging in or a caregiver. Uh, is, this is a common problem of all financial management systems in all agencies. So they're using independent non-federal trust frameworks. How do you, I guess you have to rely on this uh, commercial product. Is there anything we should think about around that? So we're not getting, I mean, I guess we're, some parts of the federal government kind of act like a uh, big bank or something, I would say, as far as this. I would think there are any, some any requirements. Comment, yeah. Yeah, I would think there are some requirements around those things. You know, there's, you know, certainly standards uh, developed at NIST that, uh, you know, tend to tend to drive the, you know approval of of external resources for that. Um, right. Yeah. So I, you know, I think I think you know the work that with the TIC, um, you know, and other standards groups who are helping you know provide guidance around those particular use cases. You know, there are, there are underlying requirements that are usually, um, you know, especially when it comes to validating identities that you have to follow to, to support that. Right, right, right. Yeah, we're getting closer to the end and the beginning. I, maybe we can come up with some tangible things uh, for some uh, for people that are planning for, for this, but maybe we'll start with planning. I'm an agency, uh, I'm, you know, Brian Forsyth, you know, like when you were, you were DHS and you were just getting started, what is the part of the planning stage? What are the, the things that agencies should do maybe that aren't as far down the maturity model, or maybe they are, what are some of the things that you can use from your experience? And I'll start off with you, Brian Forsyth, since you've done this, uh, you've been working on this for a while. Well, Tom and Audie, I think uh, you hit at the beginning, uh, you know, take advantage of the capabilities you already have in place. Uh, utilize some of the uh, licensing you already have available to you uh, through either office or even uh, other um, venues and other yep. capabilities you already have. Uh, Look internally um, and see where those low-hanging fruit are. Uh, see what you can address in, in a short period of time. Uh, and of course, you know, zero trust is, is not a a quick burst run and get it. Uh, you're going to have to do some long strategic planning too. There's going to be some 
uh, large shifts that are have to take place, uh, especially when you start talking about micro-segmentation and interoperability with micro-segmentation. Those are big projects. You're gonna take some deliberate project and strategic planning on. But uh, initially, just to see where you can get started. Start down the road. Um, if you have to, you know, turn left, you know, veer left a little bit down the road, fine, veer left a little bit. We've, uh, we were looking at a couple different use cases and we started down the road, COVID hit. Okay, time to veer left a little bit. What's more important right now? So yeah, just take a look inside. And so, okay, so you do that and, and uh, we've seen some good success with what SBA's done and a lot of what they've done. They just kind of used what they had and they already paid for anyway. What am I, what are the elements, what are the different kinds of infrastructure things for zero trust I might need? What are the kinds of things to help me succeed in that area? And, uh, you know, some of the things that I might have to think about budgeting, you know, what expertise I might need. Any, anybody want to add a little bit on that? Hey, Tom, I, you know, I, I struggle a lot with, um, jumping right into operations. So I'm, I'm going to take a different approach on my, my answer here. Um, while we have budget constraints within the Department of Defense uh, all the time, at least as far as my experience goes, if we don't um, shift our resources internally to active directory and identity and access management, it's a very laborious approach. It's a very dis disciplined approach, but it is one of the most critical pieces. So having your mm -hmm. active directory cleanup is something that's glossed over. You know, you, I know people are failing audits, right? So if we just, if we start there, I think the rest of it is kind of, it's, it's for not if your identity and access management is not um, at least 95% accurate, at least. Um, so I, I just want to say that that nugget of identity and access management if we could shift our resources there, internal resources, because again, I'm coming from a budget constraint. I have no more money for contractors. Who I have is who I got. So I take a look at my, my asset management team, my security engineers. How can we all across organizations ensure that our identity and access management and our active directory people records are as accurate as possible? And I don't think we spend a lot of time on that because we jump right into having at the same time is the network up and can i get is is it working um so we, we jump into is it working and then i get the value of that um but if we don't get identity right from the beginning active directory um we'll still it'll stay a long ways away i'm sorry um zero trust architecture no, I, will stay a long ways away just well just that's going to help you beyond zero trust but yes that's great go ahead well and to, to add on to what what brian and and Renata said, um, you know, everyone's got an identity and access management systems internally. Everyone's got applications and everyone's got data. It tends to be different teams that are responsible for those things. So as far as starting down this road or accelerating adoption around zero trust, certainly I agree with Renata around identity and access management and how important that is from an infrastructure standpoint um, to take advantage of those capabilities that you already have, certainly. Um, before you, you run, rush ahead. Um, application security the same way, you know, certainly there's, there's uh, application security programs within enterprise DevOps. Um, there's a big focus right now on shifting your, your code scanning to the left to start static, statically scanning code um, when it's in development. 
to lower the expense yep. of vulnerabilities that are later identified. Um, you know, and that's an important area, you know, to continue down this path to zero trust. And then the last one, of course, is data, you know, the data itself. Um, most agencies have new data officers who are looking, um, you know, at new ways to leverage that data. And security is going to be, a, you know, instrumental to them being able to leverage that data in new ways. So coming up with zero trust capabilities um, around securing that data um, for, for leverage in, in new ways, you know, those three areas, again, generally different folks working on those things, but all of them, you know, can head down that path towards zero trust. Yeah, and Tom, yeah, I think I what wanna... you said, go ahead, go ahead, Jim. Yeah, By the way, I did in. get a comment that you have the most interesting background. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on there. So you've got the, yeah. got the, the uh, interesting background there. Some wise, wise cracker uh, put that on, on the. Well, you know, the, the real value is, of that by is the way. It, just, it distracts people from what I'm saying. So uh, maybe that's not a good thing. Um, <laughs> any, anyway, uh, I was just going to say, in a way, you know, this follows the same type of concerns we had with uh, our transition um, effort from our expiring contracts to EIS where, as Renata said, you really got to do your inventory first, uh, you know, know what you have. Um, the other thing that I think is overlooked is a really a, a very in-depth look at, you know, after you have that inventory, what's, you know, what's your risk posture? You know, what, what's your whole risk plan, your, your framework, and how you're going to manage it? Once you know that, I think you can launch into, okay, now I, I know what I have that's legacy. I know what I have that's in the cloud, I can use some of the tools. You can do some. You can implement some of this, you know, with um, probably on in in the office suite and um, with the G suite, for instance, in terms of identity management and access um, control. But you know, from a very example, of course. But uh, if you don't have a risk assessment done and you don't have a risk plan in place. It's almost impossible to figure out how you're going to do micro segmentation, um, for instance. And if you don't have a modernized network, then technically, how do you do micro segmentation? So it's going to identify what gaps you have with your current inventory and what steps you need to take on your way to getting solutions. So it's really requirements definition, and it it's going to be painful for some agencies to really think through that because it's not as yeah. simple as yeah. them saying. Can I buy M tips? And we say yes. It's on aisle five. You know those days are gone. Um, so you know it's 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 a little more difficult on both ends, customer side, industry side, and and us as you know the providers of solutions at GSA. Great. We're getting closer to the end here. Uh, can we go through each of the panelists and maybe starting with Brian Forsyth? Just a couple last second thoughts to uh, to wrap this. Uh, this webinar up. Go ahead, Brian Forsyth. We'll start with you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks. Uh, great information from all the panelists. I, I enjoyed just even being attending this. So uh, thank you very much. Um, and yeah, it's it's like I said uh, during the, the discussion. You know, zero trust is not a, a single picture. It's, it's a multitude of things. Um, but you've got to in, be inclusive of all those things to ensure that you're actually practicing it. You know, zero trust principles and applying those to your uh, infrastructure into your environment. So um, thank you again and uh, appreciate it. Yep. Thank you, Brian. Uh, Kevin Hansen. Yeah, thanks, Tom. And, and certainly want to thank my fellow panelists today. I, I learned a lot from you as well. 
and uh, thank everyone for attending today. Um, yeah, I guess a couple things just to leave with, you know, and, and to what Brian said, you know, it's really a, a philosophy uh, with several principles to follow kind of across your infrastructure to get to zero trust. So it's a bit of a journey. And as long as you're inclusive um, across your organization, you know, there's, there's important roles for, for the IT folks. There's important roles for the business lines to play in this, um, you know, all to get down this journey towards zero trust. And in the end, you know, the end isn't zero trust itself. I mean, ideally we're getting to a point where we have enough trained data and leveraging AI and ML where, you know, we're automating most of these practices, you know, whether it's calculating risk score in real time, um, doing continuous, you know, authentication and authorization of resources, um, you know, to getting to that point where we're providing a real time mitigation, a real time response to threats that we can start, you know, even to predict, um, you know, what areas of the network are most likely to have issues that we can then plan for um, before they actually happen. So, you know, it is a journey, there is a, a destination there, um, you know, but again, it, it's gotta be inclusive and holistic across your infrastructure. And, and I think, you know, everyone kind of highlighted that today. So thanks again. Fantastic. And how about uh, Brian Gattoni? Yeah, I would say for folks taking this away, going back home and, and looking to implement it is be ambitious about the potential for your mission if you IT modernize and embrace zero trust. Be ambitious about the work that can be accomplished, but be practical in the requirements setting. Those use cases are going to be key in getting it right. And it's gonna involve people, it's gonna involve systems, and it's gonna involve change. And I, I think those are the components that make it hard just as Jim alluded to. And then also be cognizant of, of the fact that you can change the folks who are working to implement the zero trust and embrace that automation from security engineers who 10 years ago, a good day was finding something to correlate, actively correlating it and stopping a threat. And then start to change them to embrace the, all the new data and technology is gonna come their ways and turn them into automation engineers that happen to automate security functions and help maintain a zero trust environment so that the mission can continue to thrive. But if you go home and pitch it as zero trust is the next thing we have to do because it's security, I don't think you're going to be successful. Focus on the mission, be ambitious. I think you're right on that. On that. How about you, Renata? You're falling into San Francisco Bay a little bit. <laughs> oh, sorry, I was writing. <laughs> so just want to talk about um you know besides what everyone has kind of hit on i just want to talk about enablers like think of think of everything it's going to take to enable the zero trust architecture no matter what it looks like and then the second piece um is managing talent and cross-training your workforce um so those are the two big takeaways that i would give as some nuggets since we've already hit the infrastructure the readiness road to the cloud, et cetera. So cross-training your workforce and considering the enablers and plan to those enablers so you can save money where you need to save money and be like the Marine Corps. We were better lucky than good being able to plus up on our VPNs and enable telework. Thanks for having us. Fantastic, Renata. And Jim, Russo? Yeah, so thanks, Tom. Thanks again for inviting me to this panel. Um, I guess, Last week was okay because you invited me back. So um, <laughs> hopefully I, 
I satisfied your trust there. Um, my takeaway from this is, uh, you know, especially from hearing all the good things from the other panelists, is uh, really advice to you know agencies that are and small departments that are looking at this is leverage. You know, use your leverage. Leverage. You know, and a couple of the panelists have said leverage what you've got. Um, leverage what other agencies are doing too. Um, you know, this isn't something where um, it really benefits anyone from just saying, oh, I'm going to be um, smarter than the average bear and I'm going to plot my own course. Uh, I really think in this case, it, it really does pay to leverage what the other agencies are finding, you know, benefit from their lessons learned. Um, the whole tick pilot, um, uh, you know, infrastructure there, I think will be a big help in this area as well. So, uh, you know, as long as people start getting plugged into that and learn what works and what doesn't, um, it will really hasten their adoption of, of new services and improvement of their of their architectures. Yeah, kudos to Brian and his team. I love the way they did it. They didn't prescribe how to do it. They're like, okay, come back to us. We'll work it and approve it. I, I think it leaves a lot of room for creativity and you never know what you're going to get back. So I, I, I like that. Well, thank you to all the panelists. Uh, this has been a great conversation. And thank you to Microfocus for making this possible. We really do appreciate it. And uh, lastly, thanks for all the thanks for all the great questions and our participants, and uh, you know, joining us on this Thursday afternoon. Uh, everybody have a good week and stay safe. Thank you. <laughs>